Hello, uh, my name is Mike Shea, and I'm the host of the DM's Deep Dive here on the Don't Split the Podcast Network. Today, we're going to talk about our experiences with three years of Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition, and our guest for this talk is none other than Mike Merles. Mike, would you please introduce yourself? Hey, everyone. Uh, Mike Merles. I am the Senior Manager for Design and Development for the Dungeons & Dragons team, so I'm the Senior Manager of D&D for D&D. Uh, and uh, yeah, I've been working on D&D for about 12 years now, and I was the co-lead designer on 5th edition. Very good. Uh, first of all, I'd just like to start off, I'll just, I'll just throw my, my sappiness right in. Um, <laughs> I love 5th edition, Woo! and the fact <laughs> that I can play, I have two different groups that I run on a weekly basis, and it never, you know, it always is, amazes me to think about what D&D is bringing to people, the joy that D&D is bringing to people all over the world. You know, getting people to sit around a table and play games is amazing. Um, so, so thank you for that. It's a wonderful... Sure, thanks for playing. Thank <laughs> um, so I like to start off the show by kind of digging right into... So our, our, you know, the, the purpose of our show is not to hit like surface level stuff. It's to, particularly from a DM's perspective, dive deep into a particular topic. And now that D&D 5th Edition has been out for three years... Uh, I feel like, you know, I'm starting to get a handle on it, maybe. And yeah. uh, I, I, you know, I expect that you guys feel like you're getting a handle on how people are using it. So oh, I, thought it, I thought it would be interesting to kind of dive into that topic. Um, I always like to start off by asking, like, what, what three major tips uh, uh, our guests have. And in your case, uh, I have a, a slight modification to it. Um, okay. So I want to say, like, what top three tips do you have for 5th edition Dungeon Masters today that we might not have already heard? Oh, we oh see now. Okay, I get hard mode, don't I? Right. <laughs> Work in the game, little more is expected of you. So I think the one thing I would say, and this is based on seeing, uh, like, I get a lot of questions on Twitch. I'm um, Twitch on Twitter about uh, the game, and you know, people have well, how does this work and how does that work, and this is the mechanical questions. But I also get a fair number of DMing questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to cheat because I'm going to give you one like big tip, and I'm going to break it down into multiple pieces. Uh, so. uh, that'll, that'll work. <laughs> So I think the thing that people have to kind of learn, especially if they've been playing, if they played 3rd and 4th, is 3rd and 4th really, I think, conditioned Dungeon Masters to think tactically. Mm -hmm. To think, here is the villain, and you fight the villain, and the fight against the villain is the end point of the campaign. Rather than thinking more organically and more strategically. And mm -hmm. this is something I've kind of, myself, that I've learned, you talk about three years into the game, like this is kind of what I've learned, that the... Um, when you think of stories and you think about what happens often in novels and stuff like that, the it's not necessarily the fight scene that's the that's the final thing that determines everything. It's the character arcs. Like what how does a character change over time? And what they what they experience and what the, what how that changes them as people. So I think that's the first thing I would say is think strategically and think a little bit more about how are the characters going to change as people from point A to point B, beyond just getting levels, mm -hmm. right? What does it mean to go from first level in your campaign to level 10 or 20, whatever your your, 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 your stopping point is? Mm -hmm. And when that answer is really what your campaign's about. And then when you think about what your campaign's about, think about, think it in, in, in real-world terms. I think if you couldn't, if violence is off the table, right? You can't fight. Uh, you want that promotion at work, but you can't just beat people up at work and get it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, like, what would that look like? And then think, how can I then work that into my campaign? Because what I found is that fights are really fun, right? It's the, 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 the heroic part of the game. And I think a lot of this advice is coming from a standpoint of fights are appealing, so it's very easy to go that direction because people find them satisfying. It's a lot of just drama and baked into them. You know, right. will my character die? Right. Will we win? Will we lose? The dice rolls, all that stuff. But what I've found is that the fights are even more interesting when you have in the background that constant, like, what does this mean in the bigger picture? 
Mm-hmm. There are things I want that I can't just mechanics my way into, like casting the right spell or 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 using the right tactic. Mm-hmm. Um, if, for instance, I want to redeem the name of my 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 uh, my father or my my family, mm-hmm. right? Then my character's arc is actually from, I'm going to go from level one to ten. But really, the purpose of my character's arc is I'm from a fallen noble family that was accused of treachery, and we were the ones that let the dragon take over. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can kill the dragon, but that doesn't necessarily make <laughs> people might mm-hmm. think of a jerk, right? Mm-hmm. So how do I redeem my family? Mm-hmm. Um, and things like that. So that's the second thing I talk about is you know, think about is when you're thinking strategically, then think about what that means for your characters in terms of what's important to them. Mm-hmm. So think strategically, then think what's important, and then finally, as a dungeon master, go after that stuff, right? Like make that stuff hard to get and threaten it. You know, mm-hmm. there's the there's the one last informant from the old legion who like who knows no it wasn't your father who betrayed and like opened the gates it was this other guy or like mm-hmm. oh but but what happened where is he what happened to him right like the, does the does the bad guy kidnap him or try to kill him right mm-hmm. or is he mm-hmm. dead and what you need to do is find his corpse and cast speak with dead on it mm-hmm. like, oh and there's no cleric in the party so now we have to find someone to cast speak with dead and is willing to do it for us mm-hmm. you know and, and those questions I found what happens is. And this kind of goes back to the design of fifth and a weird thing we found that we didn't expect. We found that when we asked people if they liked a character class, they would tell us, I like it or I don't like it. You know, and this is, and that's obviously useful. But what we also asked was, how complex do you think this character class is mm-hmm. in, in combat and out of combat? And what we found was really interesting was that the classes that were simplest in combat, but most complex out of combat were the most popular classes. Mm-hmm. And I always thought there was something really interesting there. What's, what's an example of a class like that? So uh, a good example would be if you think of how a lot of, like, and so this is also part of it, put on the filter of a lot of people watching this are more advanced players. Mm-hmm. But if you think of how a lot of people, especially beginning players or not mechanically minded players, might play a wizard, where, oh, combat spells, fireball, magic missile, burning hands, simple, right? I just cast and do damage. Non-combat spells, oh, um, well, speak with dead for clerics is an example, right? Where it's like, Casting something like Speak with Dead has a lot of actual complexity into it, if you think not mechanically, but in terms of the story. Sure, yeah. Who are we going to talk to and what are we going to ask them? Because we only right. get three right. questions. Right, right. And that, I think, it opens up this big spider web of options for players that then actually gets really intriguing. And the way I think of it is, I don't think D&D players mind complexity if it's complexity that involves the entire table. Right. Like, you know, the classic thing, okay, we're going to cast Speak with Dead on this guy. Yeah, what everybody has to, right. I love those scenes. And and you don't feel, it doesn't feel artificial. It feels like, well, this is a discussion our characters would have. Sure. You know, Rogan, the fighter, would say, here's, well, of course we have to ask about this. And the thief's going to say, well, we should ask where the treasure is, right? Things like that. Mm -hmm. And it it really helps, I think, reinforce that. Mm-hmm. So those are my three things, but it's kind of one, which is basically play play the long game. Mm-hmm. No, that, that's a good one. Um, and and you you started that by talking about boss fights, and and that was something I wanted to get into um, a little bit later. But I'm going to jump in now. Um, so you you had a you had a discussion, a roundtable discussion recently with Adam Cobell, who who wrote Dungeon World, and with uh, Matt Mercer and Matt Colville. And uh, Adam actually brought that up. He said that one of the interesting things about D and D, not not specific to Fifth, but D and D overall, is that you think about like the pacing of a movie and you know you look at something like John Wick right and there's this like progress of fights that go on you know him versus the minions you know and him versus some tougher minions and you know introduce the 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 the, the evil sidekick and then later he kills the evil sidekick you know until finally he's like in that showdown with the old guy and somehow the old guy gets a bunch of hits and I don't know how that works but he 
Um, but there's this progress, right? And there's this sort of tension of, oh, John Wick's shot and he's hurt, but he comes back and, and, and does all right. You, know, you see with, with all sorts of things. And Adam brought up that D&D isn't really built that way. And that no. you could have a you could have a boss fight, and it's like you know this abolith comes out, and its psionic ability is crazy, and they're like, oh, force cage, you know, done, right? And and you know, and and as a DM, you're like, what that, you know, now what do I do for pacing, right? They just they just wrap the boss in a force cage, and I'm hosed. <laughs> and um, you know, it's like I went from John Wick to No Country for Old Men, you know, where yeah. the, the main character is <laughs> killed off screen. Yeah. So. Um, so you know, I, I that probably boss fights and how to how to deal with them, and and I'm I'm totally on board with you about not thinking about it from like a three stage encounter and a you know stage one he'll do this and stage two he'll do this. You know, I mean, in my Curse of Strahd game, Strahd became a quest NPC, right? Yeah. He, he huh. he's he knew the party's going to kill him, so he's like, well, let me send them off against other things, you know. And um, I'm dealing with the end of Storm King's Thunder right now, and you know, the main villain's like, okay, I'm pretty sure they're going to come here and kill me. What do I do about that? Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. No, that's it. So, so I'm on board yeah. with that. But I still I still feel like we want, you know, you want these sort of set piece climactic battles. And for me, they're the hardest thing to do to do well. I mean, yes. they, I don't know. There's probably other things that are harder I'm not thinking about. No, no, but um, it, I think it is. Yeah. Oh, so, so so what do you like like do you run set piece battles and have you seen set piece like large high level, you know, big boss fights at the end of campaigns? And and how you know what what seem to be the easy tricks for for building those and still keeping that pace at the right level? So I think the the, the trick for me, I'll just give you just here's just my perspective on it and what I've run and what's worked for me. What I what I typically do in, in my campaign prep is um, one of the things I've learned is I don't try to um, I don't try to think ahead too far when mm -hmm. it comes to things like tactics and stuff because one thing is at the end of the day it's six people versus one mm -hmm. and six minds working together and then bringing together the full abilities of their characters. They're gonna win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're going to win, right? And so uh, I instead uh, give myself a bit of liberty to think more in terms of the feel I'm going for. Mm -hmm. And because, and this is, a lot of DMs will look at this and not want to do this. This is why I'm just saying this has worked for me. Sure. And uh, a lot of ways you can say, oh, as a designer, this is kind of like the system should just do all this for they you. Could just, they could just tweet you about it. That's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but at the end of the day, really what you're doing is you're saying, here's how I want this fight to feel. And here's what I want the dramatic effect to be. And I think that's something that's important to focus on rather than start with mechanics is think, what's the dramatic effect? How do you want the players to feel as they're dealing with this? Think of it as a story, right? Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a fan of pro wrestling, which I am, you know a good wrestling match has a story embedded with it. Right. You take the heel versus the face, the good guy versus the bad guy, and you know, look, the, the, the good guy is stronger, faster, blah, 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 better than the... Oh, but the bad guy pulls out a folding chair. Or, right. he, <laughs> or he, he tweaks the good guy's injury. Oh, the good guy, we know, is, he hurt his ankle last week. And oh, now the bad guy's working on the ankle. Mm -hmm. it, you know, it builds a story, right? And now you start going, oh, you know that the good guy's hopping on one foot. He can't, he can't do his super kick. Like, that's his finisher, right? He can't do it. How's he going to win, right? Or he's going to grit through the pain and do it. So I would totally steal, and I do, I steal from pro wrestling and this idea of what's the gimmick for this fight, not mechanically, but dramatically. Right. What do I want the players to feel? Is it mm -hmm. they are fighting the villain, and what's really stressful here is that they know they have to defeat this guy like in 30 seconds. Mm -hmm. You know, like he's gonna, he's, he can't get into the chamber, you know, the chamber in the middle of the volcano until the wards drop, and the wards aren't going to drop until 30 seconds before the volcano blows. Mm -hmm. And but if they get in there and defeat him quickly enough, like the energy he's he's gathered is going to dissipate, and mm -hmm. boom, there we go, right? Mm -hmm. And so you know, it, it, things like so then you think, okay, it's it's about time pressure. It's about so what I want to throw into this fight are things that slow people down. Mm 
Mm -hmm. I want to frustrate the players. I want to make them feel like, oh, we can't get there, right? I want to use distance as a thing. Mm -hmm. And then you have the fun thing of when you have an understanding as a dungeon master of how you're going to frustrate the players, the players now have something to overcome and they get to feel cool when they do it. Mm -hmm. When mm -hmm. the elf wizard is like, no, I'm going to teleport next to the guy. Oh, okay, or whatever, dimension door. Mm -hmm. You're putting things in front of them that they can feel they can feel excited about overcoming. Mm -hmm. And I think that as long as the players feel a sense of like triumph and, and accomplishment in the fight, even if necessarily the, the hit point numbers don't match up, like they know the stakes before the fight starts. Mm -hmm. So I think it, it helps a little bit with that feeling of the fight falling flat because the players know what the stakes are before the fight starts and they kind of have a sense of what they need to do. They're not going in blind. Mm -hmm. the, uh, and then as a dungeon master, again, you kind of think, what, what's that line you're building? And as I put my hand up in the camera, <laughs> right. the, uh, the, uh, you see, you have a sense that of how you're going to frustrate but then give players those sense of that, those moments of triumph. You know, and I think that's another thing to think of, too, is what other than killing the monster or the bad guy is going to make people feel accomplished during the fight? Right. Is it that there is, um, you know, another example might be, here's the big bad guy. In a straight-up fight, you know you can kill him. But he's in the middle of this giant fortress surrounded by guards. And mm -hmm. so the boss fight isn't necessarily the conversation with him immediately. It's the, we have to in infiltrate this place. Because right. even though 18th level, there's 5,000 orc warriors here in an army. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just even... Even at twentieth level, five thousand orcs will. It's a lot of lot of javelins. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so you get the sense of oh, the, well, the real risk here is if we if the army finds out we're here, if we're if we're discovered, if we're exposed, um, how can we get in? And then during the fight, right? Okay, we might kill this guy, but then, well, that's when you start getting interesting things. Of well, we used our high level spells to take him out. Now we can't. Do we do we save that teleport? Right. Um, the ending of, of Critical Role, right? Where yeah, right. Right, but yeah, that, that sense of this character is going to cast this ninth level spell, but it actually right. the important thing wasn't that altered. they necessarily yeah, right. yep, completely exactly. altered how the whole campaign played out. Yeah. Exactly, and that's why I love what Matt Mercer did with that that thing. It so plays into what I've been thinking about a lot lately, is yeah. you're thinking, you're, you're, you're planning through that fight. It's right. you do, the fight's not the end point, it's what's going on after it, and it's the after the fight is actually where you want the payoff and the excitement to rest. Right, right. That's great. So, so taking a step back and, and kind of tapping into the to to you, what you've seen, and yeah, you know, how you've seen the game getting played. Um, what has surprised you about how the game is played versus what you released three years ago? I think we were still. I have to admit, like I talked about the third and fourth edition mindset and changing that, mm -hmm. and I think it's also a process that we've had to go through. Because mm -hmm. I think for myself, that's how I thought of. Because I'd been running the game that way for so long. You know, and I think seeing the audience really respond to that uh, was also something which I didn't really expect. You know, the um, the way in which we are, like ourselves, if you look at um, our adventures you know, since we launched the game, mm -hmm. I think you're seeing a trend. It's not super pronounced, but I think it's going to get more accelerated of we're moving more and more away from that set piece fight and more to that. Here's a situation. How are you going to deal with it? Right. You know, asking questions but not having an answer. Like, there's no right answer to this, but just mm -hmm. you figure out how you want to deal with it. And what, what you basically the, giving the players the opportunity to decide what's the right answer here. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we, we come to, and I always get the names messed up because there's like, I think it's Camp Vengeance is the one that the, mm -hmm. or, uh, the uh, Order of the Gauntlet uh, founded after screwing up. <laughs> you know, how do you resolve that? Is there a right answer to resolving that? And the adventure is, it has no right answer. There's no like, oh, you must do X and Y to win. There, no, it's just this is a really crappy situation. Right. A nominally, a person who is good, their alignment's good, cosmically they're good, but they're kind of incompetent. Right. <laughs> and they're a jerk. 
how do you how do you resolve this right and you could the party that could range from the characters walking away with the place in flames it mm-hmm. could walk be with them redeeming the guy and getting the turn around and like making it actually work it could be them convincing people just look abandon this this is crazy you guys need to get get out of the jungle like you should be here mm-hmm. um but the adventure doesn't give you a right answer it just gives you a situation that lets you run with it and i think you're going to see us doing more and more of that because that's one thing that is surprising me is how when we look at the growth of the game i think that's what's actually pulling people in is that mm-hmm. feeling of I have a lot of agency, and uh, the game is challenging me in ways that other games can't. Specifically, mm-hmm. like playing a video game, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Where video games do have, well, here's the right answer, you know. Mm-hmm. Before sure. they're Minecraft, right? We're like, okay, there's no right answer, but there's no story, right? Yeah, you just you can create a narrative, but the game doesn't. You know, that's just purely you. I hate creepers. That's the story. <laughs> um, so, so a question. So, so was that? That that sort of narrative. I'm I'm not, I'm not sure I'm encapsulating everything you said into one word, but I'm going to try. So like the narrative focus, the idea that situations exist, they don't have a right answer, and people are dropped into these situations, and the fun is figuring out how to navigate them, and it's unique to every group that that runs it, right? Yeah. Um, was that was was the was the five E drive towards that style intended when the game came out, or is that something you've seen people? now taking it towards and you're and you're sort of doubling down on it as you saw people move that way yeah no it's definitely something where people have taken the game that direction okay okay if you look at our first couple adventures mm-hmm. they have some of that here and there but it's definitely like it's definitely something we're becoming more aware of and more right. the designing tool. they were they were procedural right yeah. go to this place and that place and that place and that place fight exactly. the guy here gotcha and i think with prince of the apocalypse you saw us well let's do something that's more sandboxy sure. yeah but it wasn't necessarily fully there yet. Like I think if uh, Princes is a and Princes is a fine adventure, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But Princes as a sandbox versus Tomb as a sandbox, I think shows you a lot of how right. our thinking changed. Yeah, you and know, then and, yeah, you sort of swing in the gauges, you know, really heavy. You look at Storm King's Thunder, and I'm not sure sandbox is the right term for it, right? It's like a sandbox with the box part broken out. <laughs> um, compared to compared to other ones where like Curse of Strahd, where there's a literal and no, literal sandbox, but you know. You can't get more refined than there's a fog and you ain't walking through it. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so yeah, I can I can definitely see that 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 and then yeah, then looking at Chalt, right? A big a big peninsula. You know, there's there's again sort of a nice boundary around it. Um that that's interesting. So so are there parts that you put into fifth edition during the design and now three years later you you, you like people we're not getting it. Right? Like you know, I my wife's going to yell at me because I've been I've been saying, like, if I ever get a chance, I'm going to ask this question and they're going <laughs> to, you know, and they're going to hate you for it. But the question is, like, what are we doing wrong? And you're not allowed to say nothing. Right. <laughs> so but like, you know, when, when you look at what you guys put together, oh, is there. I, is I there exactly. Oh, great. Give it. I'll shut you're up. You're not now. leveling fast enough. <laughs> oh, really? How fast should we level? People like, like. Oh, my, my campaign started first level, and two months later, they just hit third. I'm like, no, nothing like <laughs> one per second, first and second, and then like every other second. Like, yeah. like, because we know, and, and it, you know, it's it's one of those things where we know how long people, like, because we ask, we keep asking, and this is one of the things where, uh, whether it's new players or old players, because this is just life, right? Uh, people's campaigns, lap, they're measured in months, not years. Yeah, right. Typically. Obviously, there's people, I think there was just a video circulating last week of someone who'd been, you know, my 35-year-old campaign, that's awesome. <laughs> but, but that's but way probably, probably, yeah, probably a statistical outlier. Yeah, no, completely. Most people play for a few months. And, right. and, they, and, they, and they stop at like fifth or sixth level. Right. And I don't think they're stopping because they're like, oh, I don't like seventh level. I think they're like, oh, it's just schedules change, this right. changes, that changes. 
So level faster. Don't 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 worry about the mechanics. Level once per session. Like that's what is right? But seriously, is, so is your pace one per session? Well, my pace. We'll see. Here we go. I mean, Pop, not yeah, yours, but like right? so hey, the, level, the, the know, if, like... if if you could just reach out and control the minds of the people playing D anD D with like dicta, you know, and just truly push them in a direction like a mind flare. Yeah. Um, would you? How fast would people progress? Like by hour. So here, here's what I would get. I would suggest to dungeon masters. Level your players every four hours. Just do that okay. once. Just try it. And then see how it works out and see how much you enjoy it. And then figure out from there. Okay. Now, I, I will admit my campaign, uh, the, the characters, they do go slower. Because there's a, because part of it is there's a natural sense. And I think this is just a human tendency. We're all having fun right now. Mm-hmm. Do we really need to level and change things? Like, yeah, oh, it's like right. working now, right? Like, it's fun. And and I think people just have a natural fear of higher levels, especially Dungeon Masters, because they see all this wild magic coming on board, like teleport, things like that, uh, you know, uh, cloud kill and whatever it might be, you know. And But I think having, which is funny, because I said, now, I have, I have a toddler now, so it's hard for me to game outside of work. Um, but even my, my campaign is kind of intermittent now, but, like, I think after a year of playing... The characters were eighth level, mm-hmm. and I'm like, I, I, there's no reason why I couldn't, <laughs> right? No, but I, the same, the same thing happens to me. So I'm not, I'm not going to say, oh, um, you guys are doing it wrong, but it's more, right. There's just a very strong tendency to like think, oh, this is where D and D is. But the funny thing is, I run high level when we were playtesting the game. I ran stuff right. 12, 13, 14 level, and it worked fine, right? right. It was. Now I'm not going to like. Obviously, it's more complicated. It's not. It's not as easy. Mm-hmm. But I think people get intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. To a point that to maybe they're they're, they're overly intimidated by it. Mm-hmm. that try it just try leveling once per session so you, just do that where you want that's great then, yeah that's a good one um, so it, that's a good one but that seemed too easy like <laughs> you had that answer so you have another way another thing that <laughs> you wish it's like it's the 500th year I think I think it's the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther. Yeah. Be, right. uh, so this would be mine, right? I'm nailing this to the front door. You're doing it all wrong. You're like the hundred things. Yeah. But is there a is there is there something else where like it, particularly like something that you think is underused in the books? Like you guys put the work in. You you know you you, you really you you know you know it work. Like I'm not saying it's like something you put in. You're like okay, nobody really cares. But something you put in, you're like if people use this, they would really love this, and they're not. Uh, average damage for monsters. I was okay, surprised. That's a good one. Roll damage. Um, That's for I mean, me, I get yelled at for using average damage. People hate really? it. Well, not not my players. No, none of my yeah. players care at all. They love it. They no, don't even yeah. know. That's the secret, right? Is that I'll tell another one. I, I, I vary the damage within the dice range, but myself. Oh. So, like, I'm like they're having an easy time. It suddenly turns into max damage. No, do it. So, okay. So, this is something that I think is another thing. This is cultural. It's not the rules. But I do think people, because there was this reliance, I think, on the mechanics in third and fourth. Like, oh, if you're it kind of goes back to my boss monster question. Like, oh, if you just you set up the encounter and let it go, because it's like a miniatures game. It's like, no, this is this is drama. Like, this is this is people players want sure. to have fun. They want to be challenged as long as you're not like lame about it. But if you're lame about it, then people aren't having fun. Mm-hmm. They don't care if oh, like the bubbling cauldron of acid. I added that right mm-hmm. then. Right when you open the door, I just threw it in there because why do you care? It's like you guys like it's not like someone is like going to record this and go well. Actually, this is how it should have been. Because if you had fun, it doesn't matter how you got there. It doesn't it literally does not matter how the dungeon master gets there, as long as everyone's like, "This is an enjoyable thing, and we all like it." Right. And I think sometimes DMs worry, especially DMs who are active online, they worry about what the world thinks of their can their game beyond right. people. Now I get if you're streaming and stuff, but like even the people stream, they don't know that that's not in your notes. Right. I actually ran a dungeon once where the dungeon was essentially just a series of random tables. 
Uh-huh. Like nothing was determined. Like until like I had I'd have a room where it's like okay there are these uh, these guys in this room. When the players enter the room, roll a die to see what the story is. <laughs> right? It was just like they're hostile. They're disguised werewolves. They're merchants who are lost. They're prisoners. Like and actually, I found as a dungeon master that was more fun. Because right. I didn't know what was going to happen next, beyond general thing. But then I was improvising a ton. But I'm a very improvisational DM. And I get right. that that's not for everyone. But for me, I love... Half of the fun for me of DMing is how things change, right? Mm-hmm. It's dealing with the unexpected. Mm-hmm. And so when I end a session and it's not the way I thought it was going to end, that to me is really what gets me excited. Because mm-hmm. I, I just love that feeling as a DM, like, you know, that really improvisational back-and-forth nature of the game. And so I do not... I write notes that I, I make up two-thirds of it as we mm-hmm. play. But to me, but the play, my players enjoy it, so mm-hmm. it's not. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I know people say, "Oh, it's lame, right?" You're like, if you if, if, if the entire point of the game is just to have fun, what's the point of having a system? To me, right. the system is like building guitar or an instrument, mm-hmm. and everyone's going to play it a little bit differently. As long as you enjoy playing it and your audience enjoys it, who cares if you're playing the guitar like the exact note by note? If you're doing it totally freestyle, if it's a jam session, every band plays differently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, there's not one... It's not like, oh, a guitar, you must always play Stairway to Heaven with a guitar. <laughs> right? right. <laughs> you know, it, it's... So I think people get a little too worried about, you know, the procedure of the game rather right. than the, the immediate effects of it. Right. So I have an interesting statistic for you based on the, the, the using static monster damage. I actually asked this on Facebook. You know, Facebook is a very active, I think, a 100,000-person Facebook group. And I love putting polls up there because it's a real fast way to get like 500 people to respond to a poll and see like, huh, so that's how people are doing it. And, you know, selection bias and everything else, you got to account for that. But uh, so I asked, like, do you roll for damage or do you use the average value for damage? And 530 people responded and 90% of them roll for damage. (gasps) So 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 you and I can get on this campaign and be like, you're doing it wrong. It's fun fun is wrong. It's funny because I was at a conference, um, I think it was GDC, and the designers of Hearthstone were doing a Q&A. They're talking about uh, random elements in games. And they actually said in Hearthstone, so if you play Hearthstone, some of the cards have random effects. Yep. And one of the random effects some cards have is um, this card does two to three damage. It has a damage right. rate. Right. And barely it's very narrow. And I asked them, you know, they, they did this really interesting presentation. I asked, what, was the, what elements of randomness did you find didn't work in your design? And they said, oh, well, if the damage, and the actually was so funny. I don't know if they knew who I was or what, but like, well, if it's, what well, we found, and they used the example of like the two to three damage, and they literally said, well, if it, if it was like D&D and the range was one to eight, people hated it. And I was like, that's the game I work in. That doesn't help me, right? Like, that's not a big game, right? Yeah, but, you know, don't, don't make us all switch to D4s for everything, man. I yeah, hate right. it. <laughs> it is funny, though. Like, I was thinking about, you know, because people will sometimes say, oh, I wish weapons were different. And, you know, like, oh, like, long swords and maces were different. Like, yeah, they could be different if you guys didn't want to roll damage. Because right. I could just say a long sword does five, and the right. mace does four and gets this little benefit, right? right. And it actually right. could be different. But when I'm dealing with, like, you know, four, six, eight, or ten, I have four mm-hmm. options. And, like, yeah, they're right. what do you want? <laughs> right? like, yeah, I think, I think it was 13th Age that kind of broke me of static, of dynamic monster damage, right? 13th Age monsters are all static monster, static damage. That's right. And yeah. I had a bunch of campaigns with that, and, and I just, it was so much nicer for me as a DM. Like, no, and it's just like, you know, players don't care. They Like, the variance yeah. the variance in damage on, on a monster attack, everyone's like, oh, it'll be too predictable. It's like, not really, because you, you're no. missing it, and you got multiple monsters. So yeah, I agree. Because everyone builds the spherical cow of, 
well, if I know he does five and I have six, I always right. feel safe. And it's like, I have never seen that happen. Right, I've never I seen it actually happen. Yeah, right? Yeah. yeah, where it's like, I have four. Crap, this guy right. has to be one, some drop. Right? right That's right. what I see. Right. Um, so uh, again, in this in this you know, really wonderful conversation that uh, you and the two Matts and uh, Adam Koble had, and I thought my only complaint with that is it seemed like they gave you about five minutes to talk, and I was like, <laughs> oh my god, you know what does Mike have to say? Um, but <laughs> it was, uh, Dave, it was a pretty pretty impressive cast to be part of. So that, that's true, and it was it was still a delight. Um, one of the things you mentioned is that uh, you through through various surveys and feedback that you have seen. Uh, a pretty stark difference in how newer players are approaching D&D compared yeah. to older players. Can you can you talk more about that? Sure. So what I can start with is where they're very similar. And obviously this is like proprietary information, so I can't like now put up on screen uh, the actual... You're going to share it with us? Yeah. <laughs> I sometimes I kind of like wish, but it's like, okay. Stephen McCourty was on last time, and he gave us all kinds of new stuff. Yeah. <laughs> so the um, what's interesting is, I'll start with what's the same. And what's the same is how often people play, how often, how long their campaigns run, how many hours they play per week. So it's really interesting to see, like, it really is just another generation of gamers coming in, right? Like, mm -hmm. very similar lifestyle-wise. But what's really fascinating is, and I'll zero in on one thing, because I think existing players, you have this historical baggage. Mm -hmm. I like to think of it as what I call the spiked chain issue. And this is, I love naming <laughs> the, uh When 3.0 first came out, there was the spike chain. And it was a really weird weapon. It did 2d4 damage. It was a two-handed weapon. And it was an exotic weapon, which meant you had to use a feat to, you know, to use it. And um, it had reach. And so at first, it's like, it's, it's like really weird. And it's like every single special thing you can give a weapon it has on some level. Um, but what I found was the first campaigns I played, no one used a spike chain. No one considered it. And then someone, and I imagine this happened in gaming groups across the world. Someone built a fighter with yep. expertise and improved trip, and suddenly the spike chain was the best weapon because yep. it did it, it it checked every single special ability box, and so it was awesome, right? Yep. And I think that there's a lot of elements of D and D that are like that mm -hmm. that are where, like if you've been playing the game for a while, there are certain um, things you know and like oh this is the right thing to do mm -hmm. because the, the funny thing on the spike chain is if you look, it's not in fifth edition, right? Mm -hmm. And I think if it ever showed up in fourth edition, it was like so nerfed. It's like <laughs> if you didn't play third, you're like, why did why does this thing need a spike chain and it has terrible stats and I'd never use it? Like, why is it even here? Or like, why do these people hate the spike chain so much? Right? Like, because it's it's always a reaction to what's come before. Right. So what's really I think fascinating is new players, the classes they like compared to the classes old players like. Mm -hmm. Old player players like fighter, cleric, wizard, rogue. New players are like warlock barred right like it's really like funky right and it's so and in some ways it's like this is someone who's never played dd before they just looked at the classes they don't have any like preconceptions about what's what's typical and they're picking bards right mm. and it's like it actually makes a lot of sense because i think kind of the bard kind of like the spike chain is something where if you played dd before like oh, everyone knows bards suck <laughs> right i could never know bards suck bards are weak bards are lame well huh. in fifth edition bards are full spellcasters right who get armor and who get weapons yeah. and get a free buff they can give to people that could be like the thing that's like the difference between making or failing a saving throw. Sure. Wait, do bards really suck? Right? <laughs> and what's interesting is when you look at new players, I think what they're saying is, oh, that looks awesome. You mean I get to have a sword and armor and I can cast spells right. and I can heal people and I can buff? Sign me up. We're like, oh, cleric, I just get like a mace. Like, who cares? <laughs> right? Like, oh, I can turn undead. Big deal, right? Whereas, like, veteran players are like, oh, you need to be able to turn undead. That's super important. And I think newer players are like, that's, who cares? Right? Whatever you're fighting, <laughs> it's useless, right? And it's just things like that. 
Uh, and same thing with the uh, the warlock, where I think it's just like, oh, this guy's like he's a wizard, but he's got a story, right? Like that's interesting. Right? And I think it's the same thing, where right? I think if you played third or fourth, you're like, oh, warlock, that's just a tertiary class, right? Mm-hmm. No one takes it seriously. You could you play a wizard. Where I think new players look at it and go, wait, I can make a pact with like a demon. That's awesome. I want to be that that character. I want to be that person. Mm-hmm. And I do think it might underscore a bit that that idea of going more towards story, that new players coming in. I like to think of it as for our new players, because we have a bajillion new players coming in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I when I think of it conceptually, I think playing D&D for the new generation of players is I get to cosplay without making a costume. <laughs> right? That's what it is. Like I, sure. I get to act like someone else and be someone else, but I don't have to actually learn how to sew and make a costume and go to a convention. I can just pretend to be this other person by hanging out with my friends and, and, and sitting at a table. And I get to actually make up who this person is and because it's just with my four, four or five friends, I don't have to explain this person to anyone because it's my gaming group who's showing up every week to meet this person. Mm-hmm. And I think that might be part of it, like that there is a little bit more. I think younger players are more used to this idea of adopting a different persona because they've mm-hmm. been doing it. I mean, this is a generation that's came of age with, with social media, with the you know ubiquitous nature of smartphones. They're used to playing characters. They're used to adopting you know guises very knowingly. Right. Um, and so I think that's where you see some of that coming in. You know, I think they might be thinking of the character classes more as a role to play, a person to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's why Tabaxi, like, are like everyone. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have the numbers, uh, but uh, Tabaxi seem like really popular with people. Obviously, people like cat people, but I think they also <laughs> like it's a role. Right? I get to oh, I get to play the hyperactive, short attention span kind of trouble. <laughs> right? And you think how many anime and stuff have that character? And, sure. You know, that like them, right? So. And that's kind of where I think has changed our thinking from oh a character class or a race is this collection of mechanics and thinking it more like no this is a this is a role you play this mm-hmm. is a character you get to be and we'll kind of want to think a lot about what is the stereotypical expression of this class or race as a character mm-hmm. that you're playing rather than just as like a bundle of abilities so mm-hmm. it's not oh Tabaxi are like bards and rogues it's more like no Tabaxi are troublemakers mm-hmm. uh, Triton are the um, arrogant outsiders who don't really understand the world they're in. They're the right. alien, right? Uh, they're uh, sort of like Kal-El falling to Earth, but imagine if he was an adult, right? right. Thought, you humans are kind of like, what? This is what you guys do, right? The uh, Don't you know what's really going on, right? The uh, That kind of thing. Right. And okay, they happen to make good paladins and fighters and stuff like that, whatever it is. Like the, you know. So I think that's another thing that's really changed. And I think it's interesting to see, like I, we get to feel smart because we kind of predicted that. And it seems like that's where, <laughs> that is where the younger audience is going. So. That's great. That's great. So this is this is somewhat related, and this is also like a, a personal agenda agenda item of, of myself. But I think it's one that you will that you will resonate with because um, I think. Oh, did we just freeze up? No, I think we're okay. Hey, okay, can you hear me? Uh, you froze for a second, so if you had a question, I moved. Okay, well, I haven't had a question yet. Oh. Okay, um, okay. So my question is that the, the Dungeon Master's Guide has uh, a pretty robust set of optional rules for gridded combat mm-hmm. um, and has about three paragraphs on how to play Theater of the Mind. Um, and yet, certainly in the streaming world, I'm seeing a lot of people playing Theater of the Mind. And, um, you know, I, and, and, and just my own, again, Facebook-style surveys on who, you know, p- people playing Theater of the Mind, uh, about you know, 40%-ish of people are playing either abstract maps or theater of the mind, you know, 60% playing grid. Um, but to me, it doesn't feel like there's a rule, there, there's, there's, you know, enough guidelines to help new players learn how to run theater of the mind. Do you, is this, so is it, is it intent, is, you know, do you intend 
for there not to be really rules around this this style of play, or do you see it as a gap? No, I think it's so far the um, that's kind of the intention. You know, mm-hmm. that the idea that kind of trying to rest combat more in that storytelling mode, uh, it seems to be working for people. And there's a kind of a funny thing of if you're running theater of the mind, like we have to get like, well, why are you doing it that way? Because like, we know the shift is basically, it stayed pretty consistent that it's 50-50 miniatures, okay. no, no minis. And the funny thing becomes, well, are people not using miniatures because they want it simpler? They want to keep it fast moving and they actually don't want more rules? Because there is a thing of like, well, if you want more structure, then maybe you should just use use minis in the grid. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of where I sit on it. Now, that's obviously something that could change is, you know, the audience and, and we see feedback. Mm-hmm. But it's kind of the feeling right now that if you want more structure and you want things more procedural, mm-hmm. that miniatures are just kind of the best way to encapsulate that. Mm-hmm. That I kind of worry that doing stuff that's adding more structure to, you know, using not using miniatures, just going more for descriptive, it might be this kind of unhappy third way where it's like, you want structure and clarity, you use miniatures. You want to be more just like, it's kind of loose and we're just sort of playing. You don't use miniatures. Does a third path that sits in the middle actually make anyone happy or is it just you're getting the worst of both worlds, hmm. right? Like, you're not getting necessarily the pre- precision you want. The player who's like, I know I want to know exactly where I am. Right. Or I like see, being able to just look and see where things are. That helps me keep things clear. Or the group that's more like, well, like, you know, when, when I run the game, I don't use miniatures and I tend generally run things very loosely. Uh-huh. It's more just, I want to run over and whack this guy. Okay, you do, right? right. Or, it's like, well, okay, actually it turns out there's an ogre in the way. So, oh, okay, do you want to give the opportunity attack or do you want to attack the ogre, right? Things like that. Mm-hmm. And that's generally how I manage combat, where it's, because I kind of know my players, they, they, they're not going to pay attention anyways when it's not their turn. <laughs> so you just kind of frame it as, here's what your character sees and here's kind of your options or right. give and take. So it's not something which we're necessarily going to go hard. I know we talked, and I can't remember if these are in Xanathar's or not. I know we worked out some rules for like how to quickly handle spell area effects. Like uh, uh, you had some stuff of that in the DMG. You know, yeah, there was okay. a number, number of creatures that you could have in a certain area blast, and you yeah, use okay, so trigonometry on the fly, and you could figure it out. I'm trying to remember if there was like for some reason I had some weird memory of like working on something with Xanathar's with that, but I might just be misremembering. I hope you're right. <laughs> no, it, it might not have survived into the final. Oh bummer. Because I don't know if it actually like did anything better than what was already in the DMV. Right, right. So, but yeah, so it's it's one of those things where for right now, I don't think we know enough. Like you mentioned earlier, like we're three years in. I don't know if after the first three years we have a really good handle on what would be useful. Because I think if I was to write an Unearthed Arcana right now to try to, try to like, oh, here's more structure to like if you're not using miniatures. I don't, I almost have a feeling that players, if you were to like really get inside what DMs are doing, they'd want like, give me the, con- like I think I actually asked on Twitter about this. Do you want a combat system that's even simpler? Right. Where, like you could resolve a fight in one die roll. Yeah, I remember. I was real excited when you put that. And then the poll, I think, was pr- pretty positive that people did, if I recall. Yeah. So it almost kind of feels like if we were to take another step with combat, we would actually go to even more abstracts. Gotcha. Yeah, it something, really something just... that really steps way back. Yeah. Now I have no idea how to implement that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I thought you had it ready. There. Man, yeah. I'm waiting. I'm waiting every Monday. I'm like, hey, is the, the, is Mike Burles' combat rules, are they out yet? No. <laughs> Um, yeah, you do so well, right? Yeah. So do I. Yeah, yeah. I, I find it very interesting, and this is one that people are using other people as an excuse for something that they want, right? So I, you know, I have rules that I use for narrative combat. I actually have like a single sheet PDF that I hand out to people and say, here, here's, you know, when we're running ungridded you know theater of the mind combat here's kind of the idea and it's very you know just like you said it's sort of if you want to do something say you want to do it and most likely you can unless it's totally unreasonable right yeah um and 
and it occurred to me like well how how does a new like a, a new person and i i have one example of somebody who did this with the starter set where they opened it up and they're seeing five foot measurements on everything but they're not seeing any map you know and they're like well how am i supposed to measure up five like how do i know they ask like is the goblin 30 feet away or not and i don't know how many <laughs> the goblin's 30 feet away and you're like well you just make it up right but it doesn't say like just make it up yeah. so um <laughs> Uh, so I always think like I, I, I imagine that there's this army of new players that are just struggling every, you know, just opening the starter set and, and you know, struggling with the idea of how to figure out in their head how to do five foot resolution yeah. combat. But then the reality is, no, it's really just I want it. And, and, and I think like probably, the, you know, and then this while I was kind of going through the arguments in my head, the the head version of Mike Merles told me that, um, you know, there, if you were to come out with one, there would be nine out of ten people who said you didn't do it the right way. Yeah, that's true too. <laughs> because they, they already have their way, you know. So, so yeah. that occurs to me. But it was, it was one where it's like, well, if that's true, but with gridded combat, there's a ton of rules. Like, there's two totally separate sets of rules: yeah. one facing, and you know, one with all kinds of stuff, flanking, and all kinds of options. So, well, I don't and, know, but yeah. And it's interesting because I think the um, I have talked. I think it was talking to uh, Adam Cobble at GenCon about this. We still have to get the schedule was actually doing something where, like, well, let's talk to a bunch of streamers and say, well, what, how would you change the D&D system to make streaming easier, right? Because yeah. that kind of fell into that thing of, like, well, what if instead of going, you know, you have minis, no minis, instead of going between those two, what if you went further to the, what I think it was to the right, like, even further away from miniatures, what would that look like? You know, wouldn't that be something that, would that be good for streaming? Would it be good for, right? it's more narrative? And so, yeah, it's it's an interesting... What they said. Um... Oh, well, we haven't had that yet. Well, we talked. Oh, about you're going to talk about that. Oh, cool. Right? Huh? Yeah, like, like, look, why don't we do like a design jam where we just like, you know, have a couple of people sit in on a meeting or just give us some ideas or we just do a bunch of iteration on some concepts, you know, and just talk to people who've streamed a lot and get their impressions of like what works and what doesn't. You basically have them as design consultants. Mm -hmm. So, because yeah, I think there might be something out there that we're we were like I, we don't quite know the shape of it, like I kind of directionally maybe know, but I don't really know exactly what it might look like yet. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, so you talked a little bit, and and I, you know, I don't know if you have your copy right there on hand with you, uh, but Xanathar's Guide, and we've seen a whole lot. Obviously, I think what most I'm going to make a statistic up out of my head. Many people, I'll, I can say many, and I'm statistically okay. So many people are clearly interested in the new the new class builds, right? Oh, like they they feel like you know I know I mean I've I've been running UA. UA content at, at my games and people love the UA stuff. So uh, I know that people are going to be real excited about it. And the D&D Beyond has had all the video series going through the various classes. But we haven't heard a lot about what us poor DMs get. And I know there is stuff. The table content shows a lot. Are there particular areas in Xanathar's Guide you think are really going to help us us poor DMs run, run our games better and easier? Yeah, so the one thing that has stood out that uh, I've actually been happy about this because there's something I had in my own campaign. And I think that the things that I, I that we create based on our own campaigns or or on actual experience always seem to, to do the best <laughs> was uh, the expanded se uh, section on tools because tools uh -huh. are one of those things where it's like oh I'm proficient with the brewer's tools or kit or whatever it's called and right like what what, what does it seem to look like right I, am I carrying an empty keg around like what <laughs> so um, that's one thing where and it's kind of an interesting test in some ways of the fifth edition philosophy in that. This section, it covers every single tool from the player's handbook. Gets a pretty, I mean, it's not super in-depth, but it's like half page for each one. Hmm. And it lays out, and it, I, we had an unearthed arcana on this, right? Where it says, um, 
I believe we did it on our phone. I can't remember now because it's it's we just moved desks. I literally like spent <laughs> moving stuff. The uh, at noon at lunch, I felt exhausted. Then I looked at my Fitbit and was like, oh, I just got all my steps in for the day already. <laughs> so, but you know, the idea is uh, you take each tool and then describe like here's what this tool is because not all of them actually get descriptions of the player's handbook. I didn't really realize that until I you know you get questions and you look and go, oh yeah, we actually don't tell you what what a brewer's kit actually is. So it tells you what's it, what it includes, and then it gives essentially it's game advice for like, hey, let, that assumes someone in your group took this proficiency, and they feel, oh, this is lame. I don't really know what I'm supposed to do with it. And here are ways you can make it a lot more interesting and more fun. Mm-hmm. And it approaches it in two ways. On one level, it says, okay, essentially let the player use that tool in place of a skill that they don't have. Mm-hmm. So take uh, herbalism kit. It's like, okay, you're good at gathering herbs. And plants, and you can, and, and it assumes then, okay, it's not just a kit that you know how to use, but you know the knowledge around it. So it's kind of like saying, um, someone who is a professional truck driver, they know how to drive a truck. Okay, cool. But we can also assume they know the geography of the area that they're in, or like maybe even nationally if they drive cross country, because you would, that's just something you'd pick up as part of driving. Like you need, if someone's like, hey, haul this from, you know, Dallas, Texas to, you know, uh, to New York City. Well, you need to know how to get there, right? Like, mm-hmm. So it, it says it basically it takes situations where the training around that 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 tool can could be useful, could replace a skill. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, with the herbalism kit, uh, you might say, "Oh, okay, if you are trying to figure out how someone got poisoned, the kit proficiency might help you make that in, in place of investigation because you can recognize, wait, th- th- this plant's poisonous, and it looks like this was the actual poison used here." Um, brewer's kit like oh if you're looking you're inspecting like oh was this drink poisoned well I know how to you know as a brewer I know something about alcohol and what beer should smell like or whatever so I can tell if something's off you know mm-hmm. the colors are wrong this isn't what this thing should be it assumes that there's some, some uh, expertise there and even it suggests like if the player has both the skill and the tool to then give additional bonus like advantage mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. now the challenge why I say it's kind of a test of 5th edition is the idea isn't that these are not canonical rules for tools we're not saying, hey, here's how tools work, and now each tool has a half page of text, <laughs> yeah, which is like, great. Now the game's eight times more complicated. But, but the idea is that it's a tool for DMs to use to say, hey, in my campaign, I've noticed the dwarf player has brewery proficiency, and it kind of feels like, ah, oh, it's lame. Okay, well, take this section of Xanathar, send it to your player, and say, well, here, use this, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I can almost see it being something which ideally, if you say, hey, like, what's the ideal use? Uh, you know, it's not, hey, new player, pick a proficiency, read mm-hmm. this chapter, right? right. Maybe you'll take a tool or not. No, but it's more like, hey, new player, you're third level and you're playing that dwarf. And you notice your brewery, you don't really know what to do with your, you're using your other skills, you've learned those. But your brewery tool proficiency is just sitting there. Okay, now DM, now show them this one specific thing to kind of get them to start thinking about it, right? Where And that kind of has the caveat too, like maybe the players notice, like, hey, I have this thing, I never use it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I want to get more mileage out of it. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, here's how. Let's work together. Okay, now I'm going to use this specific set of rules to give you some more options in play. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of where it's a test of the 5th edition ethos of, like, in earlier editions, especially, like, in 3rd, this would have been, okay, everyone. A whole new something. subset, yeah. Yeah. Here is literally, like, 15 more pages on tools. And right. so, well, God help you if a player takes three tool proficiencies. <laughs> and now everyone's taking tool proficiencies instead of skills. because 28-page character sheet. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it's really interesting to see how those affect the game. And uh, I think that's another thing which this is letting us do is kind of push the boundaries a bit and find out where can we, what can we do and how can we do it. Right, right. So, you know, rather than just like, oh, a new book comes out, it's as important as the player's handbook. Like, we're very much not taking that. Sure, sure. 
That's great. So uh, we have a third member of our party tonight. Uh, Alex Alex Basso is uh, running our running the whole producing the whole show, and he has some questions that uh, people have submitted on on Twitter and through Twitch. Uh, Alex, do you have a question for Mike? Yeah, thank you for uh, for everyone who submitted questions. So we'll start. Here's the first one from Twitter. This is from Wise Papa Grant. If you had one hour to prepare and run an adventure for brand new D and D players and just the three core rule books, what would you prioritize? Um, I think I'd, I'd want to really prioritize in terms of the adventure design. The idea that this is a world where players have a lot of options, but obviously for new players, I don't want to just give them infinite options. So what I would want to do is give the players a situation where it kind of goes back to this idea. I'm going to kind of give them a question, but it doesn't have an answer. So you know something like. Um, the classic setup, you're going to a town, right? Like they, Just like out of the, 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 the starter set. And I'd want the first question they answer, it would be an answer, the answer to me of what kind of game do they want to play, where you come across a, you know, this group of merchants, they've been ambushed. They know one of the am- merchants has been kidnapped, but the other merchants are, you know, their guards are too injured, like they can't effectively defend themselves. Um, what do you do, right? Like, and then you can kind of know, okay, are we the group that chases after the monster? Are we the group that wants to hang out with these merchants? And maybe the merchants are a little sketchy, like, oh, you know, <laughs> these guys, they shouldn't be here. They might be smuggling something, right? And so now you have a lot of questions. And then the players, through their actions, can show me what they want to do. Because I think one thing that's hard that I think experienced players do that, that can overwhelm a new, a new player is like questions like, what kind of campaign do you want to play? Uh, that's a big question for someone who hasn't played before. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like saying, okay, you've never had... Um, uh, Filipino food before, ever. But tell me what you want. It's like, well, I don't know, right? Like, here's a menu, and I'm not going to actually try to explain this to you. Like, try to pick things out that you might like. Like, I don't really, you know, so this is a classic thing of, you know, if it's someone's first time at the cuisine, you guide them. You don't just tell them what to order because you don't know what they want, but you kind of guide them, right? You might give them, well, would you look at these three things, right? Or like, what kind of things do you like? You know, like, tell me in the words of things you've already done to help guide me. So that's what I do. I, I would focus on and want that first scenario the players deal with to be an answer to the question of what kind of game do you want to play mm-hmm. you know and give them a real stark uh, uh you know two or three options that they can go with that's great alex what are the questions you have i guess kind of follow that up here's one from had nerf Alm in twitch uh in your games how do you collect and implement ongoing feedback from the players mm, good question oh so one of the things i did was um about let's see i think when the players hit fourth or fifth level um, I actually sent out a little survey, said, hey, what is your character, what does your character want to do? Right, like, here's what's happened, here's where you guys are now, what, what, what are your character's plans? And I tried to keep it, like, wedged in the game world um, to stop, like, to kind of get people to kind of focus in on, like, what specifically I can implement, like, in terms of the game, what I can show them. Um, and it was funny because they all basically said they, the same thing, they wanted to kill this guy. <laughs> so it made my job pretty easy. But it was something where it was a good way, I think, um, to sort of sort out like over five levels of play and like you know, over the course of a couple months, what had stood out. And it also meant that the stuff I wanted to double down on, it, it, it verified that, yeah, that was the right choice. And I kind of knew they hated this guy, but it helped kind of clarify that. So yeah, this is the right choice. Like making this guy more prominent, having him show up and start messing with the players would just would get their attention. So I think that's a good a good way to think of it. I, you know, I, I you know, kind of almost phrase it as, what does your character want to spend the next month doing? Like, and mm-hmm. what are your character's goals? And so that kind of helps, you know, bring things into focus. Do you, do you get pretty good feedback on that? Like, you know, I know I'm yeah, many groups, like, they get maybe, you know, two out of their five or six players actually respond. 
No, I think it's fine because I think in a lot of D and D groups, you just you have a natural cross section of interest. Right. I think everyone enjoys the game, but some people would say I'm here because it's social, and some people are like, no, I'm here because I want to like. Basically... like oh, I don't know. It's good. Yeah. 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 yeah, I'm having fun. I'm fighting monsters. It's interesting to watch the game. It's funny. Right? I get to talk to funny boys. Yeah. No. So I think that's fine. Like I think as long as you're getting at least one good answer, unless the answer is like you just know, like okay, this is not going to make people happy. You know, like mm-hmm. this person might like this, but one else will. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm pretty lucky in that. I, you know, working at Wizards, we you have pretty dedicated players. So, right. um, but yeah, but I think if out of five, you had two people respond, I think that, that's solid. That, that's a good way to go. And then still, it's still something good. to work with. Yeah, exactly. I think the right. challenge then is how do I kind of weave an answer that answers both players rather than gotcha. just making it very like one player at a time. Right. So. Alex, what else you got? Okay, here's one from Alpha Stream on Twitter. Oh, Alpha Stream. The strategy of a core adventure every 6 to 12 months seems to be going strong. But is there any worry it might slow as DMs have backlog? Yeah, no, that's definitely something we think of, you know, in terms of, like, we know that every product we put out, that changes what's on the shelf. And so, you know, it's an open question of what that actually means. I think I think it does mean you might see us start doing new types of products. Hmm. Um, and I think that we always want to try to do something that's different. Like when we did uh, Tales of the Unning Portal, that was not like anything else we had mm-hmm. done, right? And it's like, oh, it's not a big adventure. Yeah, it's- it gave me a vacation. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh, thank God. I don't have to like wrap up Storm King's Thunder in the next six months. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a year to run a campaign. Yeah, no, yeah, exactly. Because you see now, we know, okay, if you're like, hey, I want to run a campaign. Well, now we have like five, five of them. Yeah. That's not as important. Like I know at the first year we did two, right? We're doing them at a much more rapid pace. Um, and then I think the other thing is, you know, we know that there's different types of content people want. I think that, you know, the, the main annual storyline seems to be working pretty well for us, because especially from an interest standpoint for new players, it seems to be a really good way to get new people to come in, because mm-hmm. you're using a language that's not like, hey, have you, you don't have to have already played D&D before to get it. Right. It's kind of like, new for everybody, right? Exactly. And it's also like the language is like, hey, is the idea of going to like a distant you know, jungle filled with undead sound exciting. Oh, yeah, okay, you can play Try Dungeons and Dragons, right? The um, We're getting game marketing is much more focused on, like, here's the story, because you don't have to be a game player to get it, or a player of that specific game. Mm-hmm. But I think the interesting question becomes, what about the other products we do? And how do we keep people engaged? And we, we want to avoid falling into two patterns that are too predictable. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I think we also want to make sure that we're reacting to what the audience wants. Like, we're, because like you said, we didn't know where D&D was going to end up, and we launched it with Fifth. Mm-hmm. And I'd be lying if I said I know exactly where we're going to be three years from now, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because I think you know, every every product you release changes the audience, right? It changes how people think of the game, and then it changes what you might be doing in response. So I think the um, it's up to us to always try to, like, I think at the end of the day, you know, I talked earlier, you know, you think more in terms of just general reactions, like here's your, your boss fight isn't about the Abeleth, it's about frustrating the players, right? It's right. about, oh, but distance, but how kind of get there in time. Um, I think for us, every product is the challenge is how do we get people who have been playing D&D for 40 years or for 40 days or 40 mm-hmm. hours, ex- why should they be ex- all excited about this? I, 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 sorry, go ahead. I, I, think that, I, I think that just comes down to it should be something that makes you go, wow, oh, I didn't expect that, that's interesting. You know, and we want to avoid falling into ruts and we want to, we always, we want to do new stuff and I think if we're going to risk anything, we'd risk on the side of doing something that's too new rather than something that's too much like what's come before. Mm-hmm. I, I know that no one wants to hear about my D&D game, but since the Aboleth came back up, I have to mention how that actually ended up. And it ended up with them making a deal with the Aboleth, and two of them joined the Aboleth Sovereignty. 
Oh, nice. So, cool. Had to that's close nice. the notes and everything. And I was like, man, that's the best boss fight I ever had. That is, so, that is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it turned out to work out. I was like, I think I'm going to have to kill myself because now I'm part of the sovereignty. <laughs> They're seeing everything I see. It's pretty great. Uh, Alex, what else you got? You got time? Oh, so, so we might have time for two more questions. And can one of them be that question about the monster manual? Oh, that question. Uh, yes. Uh, I'll ask that one last. Uh, so I bring it up after this one. Uh, this one is from a real geek on Twitter. Uh, he would like to know what subclass from Xanathar's is your favorite favorite crunchwise and why. So I, 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 the easy answer is the hexblade because I like the hexblade. I was so happy when it like hit the threshold for like people approving it because I just love playing the sinister Elric like warlock warrior. But you know, I, I think I've said that elsewhere. So, but if I was to set that aside and give a different answer, um, I think of the other subclasses. It's hard, right? Because there's so many fun ones. But I, I think can only pick one. I think I like the Zealot Barbarian just because again, it has it in that concept of like the role you're playing. And I like the idea of what I'd imagine if I was going to play a Zealot, I'd play like this rail thin fanatic like <laughs> guy, like who's just like growling and he's just like this religious nut, right? Like empress, <laughs> whatever. He Is does a big look sign. Like, yeah, no, right. at the end he's gone. <laughs> he just smashes you in the face with the sign. Right? It's just like, he's got like that that crazy. Aegon is coming. Thing. Yeah, right. And it's just bang, right, right in the face. So I think that's who I think I, I would play if I had a chance. Like just the real like over the top religious fanatic who's just like you know a berserker. That's great, Alex. Our last question. Okay, this one is from at the GDG or the GD game. Uh, how would you change the monster manual, knowing what you know now? Hmm. So I think the, I think if I was going to change anything at the monster manual, I would, uh, we talked about at one point um, in developing it, that we would include tables of like flaws, bonds, and traits mm. for all the monsters. And I wish we had done that. Mm. Because I think that is something that would really tell people like, oh, monsters exist to, 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 for role playing. Mm-hmm. Right, as NPCs. This isn't like it obviously it's the monster manual, but it's also kind of like your NPC manual. Mm-hmm. That you, when you think of a red dragon, like sure, a red dragon is like it's a powerful monster, but it's also a powerful being, right? Like it's an NPC in your world. Like, you know, I, I was just thinking I was like, noodling around with some campaign ideas. I'm like, well, what if you had a campaign in, in this area of the world, like a red dragon had conquered a dwarf clan and now ruled it, right? And he didn't enslave them, he was just like. I now rule you. And if I enslave you, like you'll be resentful and everything. So what I'm going to do is spare you and create a compact where I'm your king now, mm-hmm. and you'll respect me and serve me. But I'm going to treat you well because if I treat you well, like in the long, in my lawful evil mind, what I figured out is if I don't, if I instead eat your enemies, you'll be the best vassals I could have. Mm-hmm. So there's just a kingdom ruled by a red dragon. It's a kingdom of the dwarves, right? Things like that, where you just think of them more as entities in the world rather than as like, a step block. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so even especially things like kobolds and orcs, I think we could have gotten a lot of mileage out of that by just showing you, again, showing rather than telling you. Like, we can tell you what a, what a kobold's like, but if we give you a bunch of role-playing traits for kobolds that show you that kobolds are these kind of nervous, skittery little, you know, high-anxiety creatures, like, they, they have four hit points and they know it, <laughs> that that might make them something that's more fun beyond just being a monster to fight. Mm-hmm. So so I have, to just to end the show, I have a, I have a sin that I need to confess to you. Okay. Uh, and and need your your absolution on. Um, so I've run fifth edition now for three years, uh, two different weekly campaigns. I am just now getting around to actually reading the monster manual. Well, there you go. And <laughs> holy cow, every page has an adventure in it. And I know that's like that sounds totally 
you know, like a like the the blurb on the back of the book. But I'm reading like the Aracocra and I'm like, oh my God, they have the whole thing about Miska the Wolf Spider in here. And then yeah. I'm reading the Bullywugs and I'm like, I could run an entire campaign about Bullywugs. You know, and every and I'm like only on I think I'm up to the Cambian and I'm like, I got to stop. Right. Like I I needed to take a break. This is too much stuff. So, you know, like one one major thing that I'm that I'm pushing the hell out of is for people to actually read the, the monster man, you know, like, you know, because there's such right. great stuff in there that I'm not using. And that's another thing where I think new players, it's interesting because we did Volos with all the, the monster mythology. Yeah. Right. And it's interesting how kind of sticky that has been, especially I think with younger players, because they don't know to not read the monster. Right. 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 Yeah. My, my niece had the monster manual. She read the hell out of it. Yeah. You know, she knows right. way more about D&D than I do. <laughs> no, but that's true, right? Because I'd be the same way. Like, oh, I don't, I know what it works. Yeah. Like, I just need a stat block, man. I got, exactly. I got people coming tonight. Like, exactly. You know, give me and a basilisk. It's been interesting. Like when I when I talk to to newer players, they'll know all about groups and orcs and why orcs fight other other folk and all this other stuff. It's always kind of interesting. Like, oh, okay, like they yeah, they, they don't know they're not supposed to read it. <laughs> yeah, it's really really great. Yeah, cool. Thank you. Well, you are you are absolved. Oh, so, whatever authority I have. <laughs> I want to thank you for coming on the show tonight. This has been great. I I I learned a lot, and uh, I'm I'm yeah I'm just I'm as excited about the hobby as I've ever been. So uh, thank you for all the hard work that you guys do on it. And, and thank you for coming on to the show. I really appreciate it. Cool. Well, thanks for having me. Thanks for hosting this show. And uh, do else. you have anything you want to plug? Um, Xanathar's Guide to Everything yeah. coming in. <laughs> <laughs> where can um, people find you? Uh, I'm sorry? Where can people find you? Where, where, how, do you how do you best like oh. to communicate with people? So I am mainly on Twitter because uh, 140 characters is the perfect size for a question and a response. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm at... Um, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm at uh, Mike Merle's, uh, just one word, uh, on Twitter. So, yeah, and soon I guess I have 200. I still don't have 280 characters. I don't have 200. A bunch of jerks have 280, but I don't have 280 yet. Someday, <laughs> <laughs> right? Well, even resolved now, if not already the last meal. So maybe that's oh, Yeah, maybe I'll now get 280. Yeah. I, don't think, I don't think those are connected, but whatever. <laughs> Anyway, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been absolutely wonderful. Cool. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. All right. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Uh, we'll be back Wednesday night at 1030 Eastern with the Venture Maiden stream. So make sure to tune in for that. Have a great night, everyone.